asked Warren if he had notes that I could read from. He did not, okay? So I'm going to go back to the call for the conference and just read a couple of the paragraphs that we wrote. And again, keep in mind that perhaps we would not say them exactly the same today. We are calling this meeting because, along with many others, we realize that we are entering a time of great uncertainties and great dangers. Dangers that result from what the government does here and abroad, and dangers that result from the emergence of a variety of new right-wing populist and nationalist forces that can only be understood as pre-fascist or fascist. At the same time, we insist, and this insist has been the subject of some considerable debate, that the great majority of Trump supporters cannot and should not be tarred with such a brush, meaning pre-fascist or fascist. We're not trying to deny the problematic aspects of them having been Trump supporters. Um, Indeed, as we wrote in our most recent editorial, quote, there are people in the Hillary camp who are our enemies, and there are people in the Trump camp who are our potential allies. End quote. That has been subject to some considerable discussion recently. Many people attracted to the Trump campaign, alternatively, could be attracted to a consistent vision of an alternative to capitalist society, which up till now has not existed. They will not, however, be attracted to a defense of the existing state of affairs, no matter how dressed up in notions of understanding, tolerance, and opportunity. We are convinced that the only way out of the terrible mess this country and the world are in is the development of a mass radical movement, a movement that will challenge the fundamental bases and characteristics of capitalist society with a program for the radical reconstruction of this society under the direct democratic control of the immense majority of the people. Such a movement cannot restrict itself to participation in electoral campaigns of any kind. We need to be clear, and this also has attracted some attention, we do not believe that such a movement can be built upon the legacies and traditions of liberalism, progressivism, social democracy, or Stalinism, Trotskyism, Maoism. If we have left anything out, I apologize. <laughs> Over the course of the last six years, Insurgent Notes has published now 15 issues of an online journal. For the most part, we attracted modest levels of attention and support. Recently, we believe in response to what we wrote about the election beforehand, we have seen a dramatic upswing in the number of visits to our webpage, the number of comments posted, and the number of new subscribers. We feel compelled to seize upon that momentum to find out how we might contribute to the development of a movement that we de so desperately need. I'll stop there. Personally, I think much that we wrote stands, right? Uh, I think that the events of the last six weeks certainly <coughs> have contained more than a few surprises for me. Uh, even, I guess, perhaps people know, is that I guess in the middle of the night, the appeals court in California said no <laughs> to, the kind of, to the Department of Justice, okay? And the kind of the president's order is no longer in effect, at least until tomorrow morning, I guess, or whatever. Uh, this kind of, a, I don't know that our weekends are the same way, the same kind of experience as Jared and Ivanka's, okay, that when they leave for Shabbat on Shabbos on Friday evening and they come back again on Saturday evening and they discover, oh shit, look what they did now while we were away. Uh, but in any case, uh, let's proceed. Aria. All right. Um, Please introduce Sure. You. Hi, my name is Aria Zahedi. I'm also a member of the Insurgent Notes Collective. <coughs> I'd like to... Uh, sort of just use what John said as my launching pad. And that although we're both insurgent notes, there are some places where there's divergence or at least question. I think that's where I'm really coming from. I'm not, uh, as he said in his introduction, sort of coming from somewhere definitive. I think the last few weeks have really been a kind of disorienting time 
things have been moving really fast, and I have to admit, uh, worse than I had imagined that they would. Um, even though that's that's maybe that's my fault, you know, they are worse than I had imagined things would. Um, the the way things kind of unraveled. Now, I'll start with maybe the kind of base or lowest common denominator or points of agreement. And these have been arguments that we've been having, or discussions, I should say, within Insurgent Notes amongst ourselves, but I've also, we've been having these discussions with other people and friends and comrades, so that was the whole point of this, is to try to not have it be such an internal discussion, because it seems to be general discussions that are taking place. Now, there's this idea that, um, I'll, I'll start with all the kind of points of agreement, that what we're seeing here and not just here. I think we have to sort of think about this in a global context that Claire will speak to more. But that this turn to, if we don't want to call it fascism, let's call it authoritarian populism, is uh, a result of there being no sort of social revolutionary alternative. That's a very general statement. Now within that, there's a lot of room for disagreement. I think there's a kind of view that's being... Uh, that I, I see it a lot in the left um, from sort of different elements that what is necessary to do is to develop a kind of social democratic program that would then be posited to people who are Trump supporters and they'll just make the leap. Uh, I might be making it a bit, simplifying a bit, but uh, I'm skeptical <coughs> of this view, to say the least. I think uh, the situation is a bit more muddy uh, and there's things that need to be taken into consideration that would be obstacles to any type of social revolutionary transformation. I think that uh, it is true that there are, uh, as John said, large groups of Trump supporters that we shouldn't paint with a big brush. But I do believe that these two aspects of, um, well, let me back up a bit. We have a view a lot in the left that the working class is, I see it as somewhat, we see it as an abstraction in a way, without contradictions. It's just there, ready-made for us to approach with the right program, and people will go for it. Um, I think this is a, a very problematic ideological view of the working class. Uh, the working class is an atomized group of people that only has any type of uh, coherence in its struggle. And I think that wanting to keep your job and wanting to have certain social democratic benefits is not mutually exclusive to wanting to shut your door to immigrants, from wanting to disenfranchise people, uh, from being okay with imperialist expansion, uh, these things aren't mutually exclusive. Uh, to sort of say that racism is somewhat an icing on a cake, or to say that it's an afterthought, is to really fall into this kind of uh, levels-based superstructure, kind of whatever we want to say, that I think is really problematic. It makes ideology to be some kind of afterthought or secondary thing, or a second tier from the real interest, whatever that may be. And so for myself, I'm really thinking, if, if we do believe, if we do have a vision of social revolution that is about 
the self-emancipation of the working class, much of what we're seeing are serious obstacles to that self-emancipation. Um, and that they can't be sort of done away with or theorized away these problems and contradictions. And that by just presenting a social democratic program um, is far too simple, to put it mildly, uh, of an approach to these problems. And I think that um, for me, I'm really trying to approach this from that and, and, and really trying to find what are the difficulties, what are the problems. Um, now, we should take polls with a grain of salt, I think, but uh, I recently saw that half the population supports the ban on the seven Muslim countries, which, yeah, it's a Muslim ban, but I also think we should also uh, not depoliticize it or moralize it and see that there's a reason why Iran's on the list and not Saudi Arabia, for example. Um, and that they just signed a, a few new deals with Saudi Arabia the same day that they imposed this. Um, but that's a different kind of geopolitical discussion. But I think that it's important to take note of these things. That um, it's problematic to think that there's some kind of uh, true essence that we need to tap into and that these things are kind of afterthoughts. And uh, that's basically the gist of where I'm coming from is I think that um, if we are taking seriously what I think we all do and talk about and are interested in and our work is about, we have to focus on what the problems and obstacles are, not just on hopeful, wishful thinking. And um, these aspects we want to call racism, misogyny. There's nothing contradictory to wanting to keep a good union job and have benefits and also have reactionary views towards gender relations, for example. Why would those things, why do they have, from a socialist perspective, they do, but um, anti-capitalism and socialism aren't, aren't the same thing, I believe. I believe, you know, fascism is a reaction to bourgeois society, it's just a different type of reaction, not a revolutionary one. And uh, I think that if we are thinking about these things, we have to uh, start from that kind of uh, negative, problematic space. Um, and as I said, I'm not approaching this with, I have the answer, or I know, or even, even close to thinking, this is the way to go about it. But I do believe that we need to sort of rethink things um, in a new way and not just kind of regurgitate the gospel, um, regardless of what kind of ideological faction within the left we consider ourselves. This applies to all of us, I think. And I think it's, uh, that's the kind of moment we're in right now. Um, and I'll sort of wrap it up for there, and hopefully we can kind of continue this in the discussion. Thank you, Ari. Claire? Great. Um, so before we open it up to discussion, um, I wanted to put these election results and their votes. Oh, sorry, that's right. I forgot. Good, please. Um, so, um, my name is Claire Cahan. Um I'm French. My family is from France and from Morocco, which I don't usually mention, but I'm going to talk about the international context within which Trump has become our president, um, and so it's relevant in this situation. And I spent um, the last month in France catching up with some old activist friends. Uh, which actually proved really insightful and helped me see things in new light, so hopefully it will be helpful here too. Most of what I'd like to do is pose questions to the room, um, but before I do that, I'd like to submit that actually 
um, really we can only understand what happened here in November and what's been happening since um, in light of this kind of crisis of global neoliberal capitalism um, that I believe has kind of caused this perfect storm um, and resulted in two simultaneous things the defeat of the moderate establishment left parties in country after country across the globe and the simultaneous right of a nationalist, often religious, far right that has gained the opportunistic back, uh, backing of capital, in particular of, um, of fossil fuels and weapons trades, which I think are like some of the major players right now. Um, I wanted to talk particularly about two, two countries with which I am familiar, uh, or that I'm most familiar with. Uh, I think. France and Brazil are both experiencing strikingly similar political tendencies um, to us. And uh, let me point out what some of the similarities are. Uh, both countries like here are in profound economic crises. Brazil is currently in the worst economic crisis that it has experienced in decades. France has had <laughs> like really no promises of, empty, uh, of economic growth have been completely empty in France since the turn of the 21st century, really. Um, and both of these countries, much like here, their defining feature is massive wealth and racial inequality with, uh, with uh, kind of elites on the left uh, that are very much tied to the corporate class, and um, which we can talk about a little bit later. Um, like here, uh, these are countries where the left has steadily moved to the center. Uh, they were at best social democrats to begin with. In France, the Socialist, the socialist Party has been in power um, few. So France is set to vote in national elections in April. I don't think anybody believes that the Socialist Party actually has a chance of winning. François Hollande, uh, the current socialist president, is the most unpopular president in recent history, even more unpopular than Sarkozy. And Sarkozy actually seems to be making a comeback. It's like the world completely upside down. Um, and in Brazil, uh, you know, we saw what amounted to a coup last fall with the removal of Vilma Yousef. But um, there too, though the party, the PT, may be a little bit more to the left than, like, certainly more than the Democrats and the Socialist Party in France, they have steadily moved more and more to the center and been embroiled in so much corruption that what we're seeing is widespread disenfranchisement. Um, and both of these countries, the people that have moved to the far right are often union members. Um, so like Arya said, it is not incompatible to have uh, you know, pre-fascist sympathies or authoritarian sympathies and to also be a militant union supporter. Um, there's a real sense of betrayal. There's a sense that the leftist parties have not adequately responded to global capitalism and have not protected their jobs. The decline of manufacturing is real in both places as well. But as is something else that I think is more confusing to me, and that's really what I'd like to pose questions to you all about, um, which is the rise of evangelism and, uh, and a Christian right in both places that has also attracted the same population. And I think I underestimated the role of ideology. Obviously, we, um, I believe that nobody comes to power simply by being an ide ideologue. They need the backing of capital. And right now, the far right has the backing of capital. Um, but there has also been, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, 
the right has been very smart in kind of embracing this Christian right movement, which is very much a social movement. The way that this movement recruits people is through social activities. People go bowling together. They have dinner together. Um, the church gives them the sense of community, and it's not an outwardly political stance, and I think it's um, something that the left has kind of failed to do, so I wanted to get everybody's thoughts on that. Um, and I also wanted to pose to you a few other questions, uh, including um, in all of these countries, much like here, we know now that the Heritage Foundation, the Koch brothers, the uh, Allied, their strategy has always been to work through emergency sessions and propose as many draconian measures as quickly as possible and overwhelm us so that our attention is completely dispersed. That has actually been true across the globe as well. It's very much true in the UK, it's very much true in France, and it's very much true in Brazil. In Brazil, in one day, they implemented a like 30-year austerity program, freezing all the benefits that they've had basically since you know, the implementation of their recent democracy. Um, so how do we respond to that when the, like, the specific purpose of emergency legislative sessions is to overwhelm us? Um, another question. Um, what does it mean for people that maybe are that um, may have been our allies, um, who are maybe, you know, to the left of the moderate centrist left parties that are power, to actually, often if you talk to them, have real fears of terrorism. This particularly came up to light to me in France. Obviously, France's situation is a little bit unique um, because of all of the attacks. But I think it's true across Europe and in Brazil as well. There have been like kind of draconian anti-terrorist laws that have allowed for surveillance of the left. And I think there is a sense of fear, and there is an underlying Islamophobia that you don't have to dig too far to get to. So what does it mean to talk to these people um, when that is also the reality? And how do we respond to it without neglecting the role that this like, kind of fear plays in people's lives? Without under I think we too often underplay it, but I'm open to discussion. Um, and um, what does it mean to navigate the kind of surveillance that we're going to see and that we have seen in all, those in all of these countries? Um, and how might we do a better job? So something that is true in Brazil and France, as I believe it's going to be true here, is that the austerity measures have kind of flown under the radars, but the thing that the, um, you know, that the corporate elite and that the far right has done a very good job of advertising is more of their social reform measures. So there's been a lot of talk of the Muslim ban and far less talk of the decimation of healthcare. Uh, and how might we do a better job of connecting austerity to the kind of xenophobic and racist social programs that are, you know, being put out there in the name of, you know, populist mobilization of the masses? Um, so that's all I have. No. I'm oblivious. I don't even recognize my alarm going off. <laughs> uh, for those of you who are standing, okay, just hold on one second. There are some seats uh, here in the middle. If you want to make your way over. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Uh, any are any reactions to what Claire said? No, I'd like to open it up. Uh, okay. If you'd like to talk, please raise your hand. Or I mean, and again, ask a question, make a comment. Uh, mostly intended to try it to arrive at still greater clarity? Yep. Uh, I was just wondering... Uh, can you identify yourself? Oh, I'm Pete Little, I'm from Portland. I was just wondering uh, what you base your argument that the that capital is aligned behind the far right right now. Um, uh, whether they're aligned or whether they've chosen to opportunistically or decide, resign themselves to the fact that they must align in order to keep their power, I think, 
Uh, in France, it's been really interesting to watch Marine Le Pen's, uh, who's you know running as the candidate for the National Front, really changed her rhetoric around a lot of social policies that she used to back. She was one of the people in France who had systematically called for the raising of a minimum wage. Recently, she kind of gave, she gave an interview um, saying I, that I, you know very much like Donald Trump lies through her teeth. Um, so it's the exact opposite of what she said her entire career. Uh, said, I have never supported the minimum wage. I would like the destruction of minimum wage. I don't believe that that's the coincidence. I believe that that's because she knows uh, and has been asked to change her rhetoric in order to appeal um, to the financial interests. Um, and I think uh, Donald Trump's cabinet kind of speaks for itself as far as a, an aligning of the corporate, of certainly uh, you know, the heads of corporations with that, with that regime. Um, I'm less familiar with the situation in Brazil, but you know, the first thing they did was implement a 30-year freeze of social programs. So. I misspoke a moment ago. I want to correct. Can you, do you, uh, anyone, you don't necessarily have to ask a question uh, to, uh, of the two panelists, okay? Nor do you even have to directly respond. You can, you can continue the conversation in another direction if that's what you would prefer. Yes, my name is Jim Dingman. Uh, when I was uh, younger, 50 years ago, I worked in a factory in Queens after I got out of the Army and was dealing with supporters of George Wallace all the time. And I've seen the left basically for 50 years not really deal with that question. Okay, how to deal, how to change reactionary attitudes among the white working class in particular. The working class now, of course, is quite diverse, but it's a cop-out to then fall back into identity politics arguments and then say, oh, well, it's diverse. Well, it isn't diverse. It's just mainly white males who we have to deal with. And that question is something that really is, I think, a weakness of what has happened. I mean, you mentioned, the gentleman in the middle mentioned the issue of social democrats, sort of a fallback to a social democratic popular front approach, which I personally agree with right now. But those on the left, including the sectarian left and all their different vagaries, including anarchist left, really have to sit there and work and talk with those white, white, white wing uh, folks and learn and figure out how we can change their minds. It's not a simple task. It's a hard task. But to me, that's one of the central problems that has to be solved in the immediate future to going forward. And a popular front approach, frankly, right now, it doesn't matter what the sectarian left thinks. That's going on anyway. We see that going on in the past two weeks, and it's going to continue to mushroom. And wait till Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid get hit. There will be a whole new ball game. We have to be ready for it. Jim, can I just, I just caution, okay? Let's, if we could, we're barely 20 minutes into this conversation, okay? I think that a couple of things, some empirical facts, okay? Like, for example, okay, and I'm not arguing with you. I'm just citing as an example that it's white male workers, okay? I want to just caution us that those are kind of claims, those are assertions, they may in fact, you know, be more or less, you know, accurate reflections or kind of, uh, kind of understandings of complex realities. Just I agree, but the, the polling facts tend to reinforce an assertion like that. So, so it's the, not a narrative. So by way of example, I don't want to belabor this point, saying that polling facts suggest, okay, is a different way of making that point. It's a little bit less definitive. I think, I just want to emphasize that as a way of sustaining the conversation rather than moving very quickly to arguing conclusions. Okay. Well, again, Can I just uh, make a point, response to that? Yes, all right. Yeah, yeah. All right, I just, uh, going on that point, I wasn't dismissing any kind of uh, left popular front one way or the other, whether that's good or bad. I'm not e even there, you know. <laughs> My point was more that 
this idea of just putting a kind of mainly economic social democratic program that doesn't address the things that we all have to address in trying to constitute some kind of entity. And uh, I think that, um, you know, for any, for, for a working class to constitute itself, it's going to have to overcome the contradictions that are within the working class. And a lot of it's based on race, sexism, homophobia, whatever. But there's also, it's nothing new to say that the working class is a divided working class. I mean, 150 years ago, Marx was saying that apart from the struggle against capital, the workers don't consist as a class. They're just atomized beings who are competing against each other on the marketplace. And I think it's no, it, it's really nothing that we who pay attention to history should be surprised that the head of the trades union, which is historically the more conservative reactionary of the unions, has said this is the most productive meeting I've had with a president ever, or something to that effect, you know? Because you keep your job, but migrant workers that come from the South become, um, you know, brutalized, be put in a situation of fear, become harassed by the police, have, you know, there's nothing new about that. And um, another point, this is a side note, but whoa, I think- Whoa, whoa, hold off on that one. Uh, all right, I'll hold off, yeah. <laughs> Hey, um, my pet name is SRG. Look, I think you need to make a couple of distinctions here in our language. First off, Popular Front is a very specific historical meaning. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. After the third period, it was an alliance with the section of the Democratic, quote, Democratic, enlightened oxymoron bourgeoisie in an attempt to protect the Soviet Union. That's all it was. It's an important and point. It set yeah. up every revolutionary struggle for defeat. Let's make that point clear. We're not here. If we're here to discuss popular from politics, we've all made a big mistake, and we've already lost the battle. Hold on one second. If anyone at some point, okay, really is a reference is made something that simply are not sure, okay, you can if you want to ask for a point of elaboration, that's fine. Go ahead, please finish. The other thing is, I think you need to situate what uh, we shouldn't really worry about appealing to white males. What you want to appeal to is a class, and you do that through a program that approaches the needs of the class and the most vulnerable sections of that class. Right now, the most vulnerable sections of the working class are immigrant workers and women workers. 67% of women with children under the age of six are in the labor force and are paid 70% of what men make. Now, we have to develop a program for those issues and not worry about whether or not the Ku Klux Klan cells that used to be in the UAW in Detroit when Wallace was there, and they were there, the Ku Klux Klan yeah, yeah. are going to come over to our side. I'm not worried about Trump's supporters coming over to our side, and I wouldn't waste a second appealing to any of them. You need to appeal to the class on the interests of the most vulnerable sections of the class. Okay. Uh, yeah, please. Um, Once again, please identify yourself. Um, hey, my name is... Um, uh, James Turner. I'm with uh, the Red Party of New Jersey, I guess. <laughs> and um, uh, so I think part of uh, what I would say to this is that there's a difference between people who abstractly support uh, deportations and when it's a, we, I think we have to make it a practical question and less of this kind of abstract. It's, it's one thing to say to a person asking you on a poll, do you support deportations? And it's another thing when ICE is knocking on your coworker's door. You know what I mean? It's a, I think it's a, I think we, it's a practical question. We have to be able to be able to set the institutions that can defend the working class uh, as a whole, because it's like 
Like my my workplace, it, it's very starkly divided. I think between the people who work the, in the back end, who are mostly non, it's not so much. I don't think it's so much in my workplace specifically. It's, it's a division of being able to speak English with an with an accent, and not and being being able to speak fluent English and not being able to speak fluent English is the division that I think exists in a certain sense. But uh, my point is that. We have to be able to organize people to defend the class, and if people are, if people maybe are abstractly voted for Trump, but are willing then to, if their actual people are being deported, are willing to come and defend them, then that's something we can deal with. But if someone's, when it's a practical, real-world question, that's a, that's more important than maybe whether someone voted for Trump. That makes sense. Uh, yes, please. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm with Planet Affiliated Society. Uh, I just have a question about uh, ideological obstacles when it comes to organizing the working class through what you said through social democratic means. Um, I want to push back a little bit with the gentleman talking about not pursuing Trump voters as possible cadre for a movement like that. I would say that there might be plenty uh, because a lot of them are working class and in precarious conditions, plus the 100 million people that didn't vote. I would wager that a lot of them may have voted for Trump out of protest of the system that they didn't they protested by not voting. So my question is, um, the way that you, you pitched race as a problem or as an obstacle for trying to convince people that it's the material interests that are of concern, wouldn't it be true that a socialist party moving forward to try to organize against the bourgeoisie would need to take in racist people? It's not really that you change an attitude and then all of a sudden they become revolutionary. I mean, I think that the attitude will change through time. It's so. Uh, do you see it as like a, a one-two step where racism needs to be overcome and then they become social democratic? Or do you think that it would be part of a process that's so entwined that you know racism may still be an issue as you're organizing, but you would try to fight overcoming it through that process? Well, me personally, I, I mean, what I've been thinking about uh, recently is I think that it is an intertwined process, you know, ideology and material struggle. But I do believe, I'm actually sympathetic to the point that uh, Sartesian made about orienting yourself towards the most vulnerable aspects of the working class. Working class, I was saying before, it's divided. And I mean, I think about that, thanks for that comment. I think that's a good way to put it, is that those that are in the more, I don't know, I don't like this word very much, but a privileged or upper strata of the working class that are more secure, you know, white workers that may support Trump, they'll be forced to have to confront that if things were to generate in that direction. But, I, I mean, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you know, I don't think I'm someone who can go talk to somebody like that. I mean, I've been pretty paranoid the past six weeks, you know what I mean? Um, but, like, I think that it's... Uh, and this goes back to, I mean... That was one of the greatest sort of achievements of the Italian left of the early 70s as they tried to orient themselves towards sort of women workers and immigrant workers that were kind of more at the more precarious, more vulnerable uh, to austerity and to all the other attacks of capital. And it's through their mobilization that they'll either have to confront it or, or that's an obstacle to the social revolution. But m for me, it's... I'm approaching it from like this is an obstacle and like we can discuss w as we are right now which is good the different views we have of how to overcome that obstacle 
my skepticism was towards what I've been seeing of this idea of there isn't an obstacle, we got it figured out, it's only because we didn't have a socialist program, all those Trump supporters would have joined us if there was a socialist program. And I'm really skeptical of that view. Um, you know, that's what I meant by it's a bit more complicated and uh, you, know, you might want to keep your privileged union job so long as you know, the border to Mexico is closed and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Can I just say one sentence? Yes. What, ab what about racial tensions between like Arabs and blacks or blacks and uh, Hispanics? I mean, you would have to overcome those racial tensions, yeah, sure. too, right? In the most vulnerable sections. I, I just, I, I'm curious, I just wanted to know how, how, would you, how do you see trying to overcome these ideological obstacles while still pushing forward for a social democratic program? Well, hopefully I'll have a better insight as long as this continues. I don't have the right. answer to that question. Hold up for just one yeah. moment. Amiri, are any of the people who are on the Google Hangout, first of all, are you seeing and hearing okay? They're all muted. They're on mute. Oh. <laughs> Amiri? <laughs> yeah, you see. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> He's on music. I get his sound. All right. Uh, how do we? Anybody know how to fix that? Yeah, uh, he he fixes it. Uh, uh, Amiri, you can fix this. I told you. I'm doing this great, Nancy. <laughs> He's not muted. It's not hooked up to the speaker. Yeah, you gotta. It's muted if you click the mic. I think that it is indicated. Yeah, John. How many communists does it take to fix a computer? That was a really bad idea. Hold on a second, folks. I'm sorry. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll get back to that in a moment, okay? I wanted to just pose this possibility is that if anyone feels that, you know, there's no obligation, that you want to take the conversation in a different direction, from where it's been, okay? That's fine, okay? And, and actually, especially if you feel that, I'd like to, to urge you to speak up. John, does that make sense for you or not? Yeah, sure. So I guess I just have a question. No, John, just who you are. Oh, I'm sorry. So I'm, my name is uh, John Gordon. I live in Brooklyn. I've been around some of these folks for a long time. Uh, I guess, you know, pretty much everybody who has spoken up to now has, has talked about the the working class, and, not, and maybe this is, maybe some people think this is sort of a stupid question, but I'm not sure we really have an understanding or agreement on what we mean by that. And I, I guess I feel like language is important. We, we ought to be clear. 45 or 50 years ago when I got active, people used to talk about the working class, and I think had a shared understanding, probably a flawed understanding, but a shared understanding of what those words mean. I think I, I, right now I'm not sure what, when people say the working class, I, I'm really not sure what, what anybody means by it. Maybe we need some clarity about that. Okay. Uh, any pickup? Oh, how about the gentleman over there in the car? Uh, my name is Ross Wolf. Uh, I write and follow insurgent notes. Um, I guess the, the whole division between Trump voters and non Trump voters seems to me spurious. There, there are Trump voters who I mean, there was a Syrian family, I believe, that voted for Trump that is now in danger of deportation. There's some big story about that. Um, I think that addressing the needs of the class, even a divided class, I mean, because the class is divided along trade lines, along income lines. Um, I'm not sure if we want to resurrect the idea of a labor aristocracy. 
Um, I find that to be that analysis to be misguided. But while acknowledging that there are divisions along, you know, immigration status, income status, um, I think that by addressing the needs of the class and the interests of the class, um, without reference to whether somebody voted for Trump, voted for Hillary, voted for a third party, didn't vote, I think that's more of the issue. But I, I think I think that the interesting point that the Insurgent Notes Collective made in its comments on the election was that um, they weren't looking to exclude the Trump. They're saying that, I mean, I think that that's what the rough, you don't target, you know, Trump voters or disaffected Trump voters, but you don't see them as inherently reactionary. They could have voted for any number of reasons. So, a couple, can I repeat what I'm saying? So, John posed a question, which I think I'd like to direct us back to that for a moment, okay? Rather than simply skipping over that, that there is clarity, there's shared understanding about what is this working class, what is the class, whatever that people are alluding to. Let's, let's take a few minutes to talk about that. If people have kind of ways of thinking about that, they think might be helpful for the rest of us here. If you could take a second and put that forward now. Because I, I would just say, I'm, I'm not sure it's a useful term unless we have some clarity about it. Maybe it's yeah. not a good way to even have this conversation. Okay, anybody? No, no, we're going to take turns. Um, I told off. Come on, folks. You want me to say something? No, please. <laughs> um, hey, my name's Aaron. I'm in the political science department at the GC. Uh, I'm going to out the political science department a little bit because there's conversation in there um, in terms of people organizing about whether or not it's appropriate to bring up anti-capitalism. And I think that goes back to, that goes to this question of like addressing the working class and, you know, bringing up, I think bringing up if anything, now is the time, in my opinion, to bring up anti-capitalism in this rhetoric, but that isn't necessarily going to get rid of racism. And I think in some way, like, if we're talking about addressing the working class, to me, it's like actually dismantling the working class as it is right now, or our concept of the working class, and moving towards like bringing people together and working on projects, because it seems like the only way we're going to dismantle racism is going to be through an anti-capitalist labor project that puts people in the room working on projects together. So, and, and, and addressing like who is the working class, like today the working class could be, right, service workers. It's very like amorphous, it's very atomized like you're saying. It doesn't seem like there is this, you, you know, there isn't this unionized idea of the working class anymore. And in some way that's good because the unions aren't going to aren't going to solve this problem. So in in some way we need to reevaluate, you know, what what you know addressing working class or what, whatever. You can answer the class question, Walter. In part. <laughs> Anybody more directly want to respond no, to this I'll question? Respond, I, I want to add things to it. Uh, <laughs> hold on one moment. <laughs> Yes, please. I don't oh, no, 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 I can't, you, you've already had your chance. Okay, <laughs> right. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm agreeable. See how nice I am? <laughs> I've always known that. <laughs> Wrong, but nice. Uh, <laughs> All right, uh, Carol, I'm sorry. I'm, I'll get back to this. I'm, I'm not going to give it up. Hi, um, my name is Carol Lang, and I, um, I actually teach at BCC, and most of my students there are uh, working class 
immigrants from Dominican Republic and um, a number from Africa and places like that. So, so bear with me. Could we could we agree? Let's say your students there are immigrants who have get paid for working, as opposed to characterizing it as the working class. I mean, I think that's what John is posing as something that's a problematic category. And if, I, we, if we I, really I, want to, well, I really, really think you should stop really, you know, censoring everybody. That's right. It's uh, really well, not well, 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 <laughs> <laughs> No, no, censoring everybody is. Or me. Well, <laughs> just bear with me. The goal of this meeting, okay, is not to restate things that have been said hundreds if not thousands of times before, it's try to imagine thinking and saying some new things, okay? So just, I'm trying to make a suggestion, Carol. Okay, I, I, I'll let, I'll just bypass it. Okay, so, when, during the, uh, the during, the, about the question of racism, I agree with you that there's tremendous divisions within, you know, the, what I would consider the working class. Um, but, and Marx addressed that during the period of the Civil War, he said, um, white labor will never be free as long as blacks are in chains. So that it was always a, a problem w within the American working class. That's not to say that those things can't be overcome and shouldn't have to be obviously overcome in order for there to be a socialist society. For me, I've been involved in politics for you know, 40 years, and this is the most that I've seen in a very long time, and I'm sure that lots of people who are have been involved in a long time could attest to the fact that thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people have come out into the streets all across the country, across the world, and these are people very often who have been cynical, have not been involved, not even understood politics, who are now involved. I think there is a place now for us to approach these kinds of questions where you know, it was a drought for such a long period of time, which opens up possibilities to talk about immigrant rights, women's rights, racism, all those things that were very difficult before. And that doesn't say that they don't exist, but now we have that opportunity really to address it. There are a lot of people that voted for Trump who had voted for Obama in the past, but felt left behind, and rightly so, that I, I think as part of what we have to say to people is that we need anti-capitalism, we need socialism, we should not put any support in current people like Bernie Sanders and our revolution. I you think that... Hold off, Carol. Really? That's right, not what we're up to. Okay. So, but what we have to do is we have to pose a program to people that will unite all of these people who are potentially, could be potentially revolutionaries, even with all of their blemishes. I've gone to demonstrations where people have said, you know, this is not America. America is inclusive. America is for everybody. It's for all immigrants. And they have these, the Statue of Liberty and all of that. And this is all false consciousness, in my opinion. Okay. So no, 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 Carol, I'm a moderator. Walter. My name is Walter Dom. I belong to an organization called the League for the Revolutionary Party, which I'll quickly identify as Trotskyist, but unorthodox Trotskyist. Look, um, the working class, to my mind, is those who, who are forced to sell their labor power to survive. Uh, and it's very much divided, as people have said. Um, and Trump, in particular, is working to further divide the, the, the class by attacking the most vulnerable first. I, 
uh, want to agree with what uh, S. Artesian said. He and I have had theoretical arguments for a long time over various things, but here I'm, I think he's absolutely right. Um, that's where the, that's what, what we have to do is build a movement, build organizations that can start by defending those who are immediately under, under attack. We could certainly also point out to the rest of the working class that uh, you're next or you're in line. And put out, he's starting with them, and that's what the struggle. And that's why it's been ter terrific. As, uh, Carol was the first person to mention, I think, all these struggles that are, that are taking place, and we have to be um, encouraged by that. I mean, it's terrific that liberals who are in my family, friends, you know, are in the streets, went to the airport to defend the, the immigrants. I've, I've never seen that before, um, because people are sensing that the attack is starting with the weakest, the most vulnerable, and is going to come to them. Shimon and then Dan. Yeah, I, hi, my name is Shimon. I've written for Insurgent Notes. I, I don't know if what I'll say is digressing or inappropriate, so John, you can do your thing. Um, I, I guess my contribution, as I'm listening to what people are saying, is thinking about the people I work with in Queens. And there's three characteristics that really define, and they're, they're all like young, kids born in New York, and three characteristics really define what the politics are. First is I think what a lot of people are saying here. You know, people are like, we got to fight and, and defend people and all this stuff. But then there's two others which I think really are very challenging, I think, for anyone at this time and poses what a new generation of radicals are thinking about. The second one is people fear inherently the end of the world is around the corner very challenging task to address uh, for a communist to navigate that political situation. And what they want to do is stockpile food and stockpile weapons. And that's become a serious part of the political conversation. And if you dismiss it, they're going to look at you like you don't know what's going on. And I take their points very seriously about that. And the third point that keeps coming up is people are very interested in self-defense. And in New York City, those self-defense centers have popped up um, across the different boroughs. And people want physical confrontation. It's, 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 I've never been in groups like this where people are basically ready to fight. And if you aren't ready to fight, you're kind of seen as like a liberal or a social dem. And people also don't realize the dangers involved in doing that. And I, I, I guess I'm, for me, how I've thought about it is how do they see the world? They don't know what the popular front is. They could care less what happened in the Russian Revolution. For them, the world started when either Trump became president or in the last few years. And what I take as their strength is they, they do bring a profound freshness to the conversation where, and, and I've tried to really navigate how to not be an overbearing um, person of imposing every historical lesson that's happened and try to let, try to understand that they're experiencing their own historical events that will give them their own unique insights in a way that I will not have. And I think it's been a good learning experience. It's been very challenging because I think they make mistakes that I wouldn't want. But it's, you know, it's their journey to some degree. I guess, I, I don't know if this is helpful or this is random, so sorry. It's fine. Dan? Um, I'm sorry, Dan. Yes. Oh. Oh, please, I have to say. Uh, my name is Dan Lazar. I'm a writer and journalist. Uh, this is in response to something that S. Artesian and uh, Walter Down uh, said. Um, first of all, the question of um, 
orienting ourselves to the, uh, the most um, vulnerable sectors of the working class is somewhat misleading. Our orientation should be to the entire working class. And where what Walter said is important to oppose attacks on these especially vulnerable sectors, that is of course true, but it's important to mobilize the working class to defend these, these, uh, these vulnerable sectors. So the, the important thing is working class unity, the unity of the entire class built around a socialist program. Uh, and the question of distinctions, differences, <laughs> divides within the working class, the problem of how to construct this kind of working class movement is the problem of how to overcome such divisions and develop a working class perspective aimed at combating them and overcoming them in a socialist manner. Katie. Um, hi, I'm Katie. I'm a little intimidated by all the um, people in this room, and I'm worried that my question is really stupid. But um, so, but I wrote it down, and um, it's kind of a question, but also trying to um, summarize um, what the speakers were saying. And what I was getting, the primary argument was that, um, is that there is a contradiction between social and economic issues. And um, that's our primary problem, is that contradiction. And so um, my question is, so what is the biggest obstacle standing between that connection? Um, and then how do we remove that obstruction, which I think is followed by, are we struggling for socialism and forcing it um, on, and these are all old questions I feel like, but I'm just saying them because that's what's coming to me. Um, are we struggling and fighting to force socialism on everyone, or are we trying to change people so that they want socialism, or are we trying to get everyone to engage in struggle so that in the struggle they change and want socialism? And I'm saying socialism as like a really broad term for whatever you want to say. The new society, a free society, blah, blah, blah. And I think a lot of people, well, I, I know just a few people in here, and I think a lot of people would say that that primary obstacle is um, race. And so what, what follows for me from that is that question, are we trying to um, force a free society get people to stop being um, uh, racist and white supremacist, or are we hoping that they join us in the struggle as we struggle for different things? Thank you. Uh, anybody want to pick up or respond to either what Shimon said or now what Katie has asked? Um, yeah, the you can't see it. Uh, yes, please introduce yourself. <laughs> Can't hear you. Right, how about this? Is this better? Yeah. Yeah. So, I, a lot of good points have been raised, uh, but I think maybe like you know, all of us are socialist, communist, whatever. Uh, maybe we're giving ourselves a little bit too much credit for uh, our capacities at, at this current moment, right? It's like, yeah, like a hundred percent, we should as the working class, and I adamantly uh, use that term, uh, should come together and you know enact a, a, a program. But like, how many of us are there? You know what I mean? Like, 
doesn't it make sense to start with the people that are already up, at least somewhat on board, right? It's like you could go organize people that are like waving the flag for Trump, and they are part of the working class also, but like there's not that many of us. So like why don't we organize from where we're at, organize with the people that we're with, that at the very least are like, yeah, I don't think immigrants should be thrown out of our country or black people should immediately be locked up. Like, we can get to that later. Like, let's fucking do what we can now, right? I don't, I don't know. Thank you, Jim. Anyone else? Um, we can hold off, Jim, for people who haven't spoken yet. We may be able to go. Uh, excuse me? On this may be solved. Oh, okay. Actually, just to remind, anybody who's watching who's on the Google Hangout want to say something or ask something? Can you hear us now? Yes. 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 Anyone else? <laughs> right. So, anybody wants to say something, ask something? Oops. He muted himself. Amiri? He did it to himself. Yes. Or we did it he did it to himself. Oh, hey. I don't have any questions or comments at the moment. But anybody I just else? Want to make sure that everybody remote could talk. No? That's fine if not. No. <coughs> no, not at the moment. The rest of the people are muted, though. They can't yeah. unmute themselves. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, anybody? I mean, can I say something? Yes, please. Oh yeah. Um, is that so much that we should try and reach Trump voters specifically? I'm sorry. Can you say who you are? Oh, sorry. Uh, my name is Jake. I'm with uh, Communist League Tampa. Um, I was just gonna say it's not so much that uh, we should try and reach Trump voters specifically, but the quote-unquote white working class should be offered a non-racist solution to the amelioration of their problems. And part of the problem is, and part of why you know Trump, tri Trump triumphed, is that the Democrats didn't do that. They didn't really offer them anything of substance. So, you know, surprise, surprise, they went for the one thing that looked like it might, you know, upset the table of, you know, of the current ruling forces and so forth. So, I mean, yeah, we don't have the capacity, obviously, to reach the masses in a way that uh, is needed right now. But we can try and push things further towards addressing the needs of the class as a whole. And uh, we should try and like, stay away from this, you know. Because some of the stuff about, you know, kind of throwing the quote-unquote white working class under the bus sounds really close to like, the old like, labor aristocracy and a lot of Maoist ideas uh, from like, the old days. Which is kind of scary because there are like a lot of like Maoist collectives like popping up. Jake, and I'm concerned that there are you know <laughs> some people are going to come along and you know bring people you know get bring in disaffected people and get them amped up on some ultra voluntaristic bullshit. But uh, anyway, that's my comment. <laughs> Thank you, Jake. That was an exemplary instance of being not following the orders. <laughs> anyone who has not spoken yet, or anyone wants to, I'm really interested, I'll catch you in a moment, okay? I'm really interested in people, kind of just to direct people back to what Shaman said. What, you know, kind of, Shaman is, was speaking, I mean, Walter did a bit of this, talking about members of his family being part of things that they never had been before. Uh, for those of you especially who have in some ways been engaged in kind of either some of the actual public demonstrations or are kind of engaged with just being with regular folks, okay, on a day-to-day -day basis, what are the things that you're picking up that you think are relevant to try to make sense of what has gone on and what may be coming on, okay? Please, I'm sorry, please identify them. Um, yeah, Bill from the Utopian Tendency. Uh, I just want to introduce 
we've talked about the working class, the most vulnerable sections of the working class. The most vulnerable sections of the working class, I want to point out, though, they are also oppressed as by the people they are. They are oppressed as women, they are oppressed as black people, they are oppressed as brown people. And I think we should make that distinction when we're thinking about this. It's not just a, a worker thing. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah, Luis. Uh, I'm uh, Luis, and I am from Arizona. Um, I mean, one of the things that's it's interesting how quickly we're going to solutions, and I'm hearing people offer solutions. I'm actually personally really interested in the analysis of where the hell we are, because I am completely confused as to what has been going on. And what I found the most useful is uh, descriptions, actually descriptions of France and descriptions of Brazil, and some of those trends allows me to understand kind of patterns uh, in order to respond. In terms of that, we've been acting uh, pretty active in uh, Blackstaff, Arizona, uh, and seeing lots of different things. So in terms of acting and how to act and all that, I, I have lots of things that I can do. I'm just wondering what people are seeing in terms of the tr in, ter in terms of those trends. In terms of um, what people uh, uh, what people are mentioning, what we have witnessed in Arizona, uh, and which I don't know if it's it, happening everywhere, but what we saw uh, recently was uh, a series of demonstrations where very liberal white people that used to be Clinton, uh, you know, uh, what is it called, pant actually very quickly start turning out to several different kinds of struggles that surprised me, including around minimum wage issues that weren't, they were absolutely absent before that, and uh, eventually uh, in one demonstration actually confronting white supremacists uh, and actually yelling at them and talking about uh, things about anti-white supremacy. Now, I don't know if that's a trend or that's going to continue or if that's a group we want to work with, I don't know, but that, like somebody mentioned, I had never seen before. I've never seen um, anti-fascists yelling um, at white supremacists and then white people, uh, uh, middle-aged white people from Arizona actually going, oh, okay, that thing that seems okay. Um, so uh, uh, to that, uh, and then on top of that, I think the confusion that was mentioned er uh, earlier by one of the authors for the last, uh, uh, one of the speakers for the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, the attempt to actually confuse us uh, 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 in terms of the attacks in every kind of direction, that also seems really new to me, at least in my experience, uh, and people running unable both to understand, conceptualizing what this is, is it really fascism, is it not, is it an attempt, is it a white supremacist takeover, is it a potential, and then the state itself kind of fighting against itself um, and being unclear that that confusion in relation to the response seems to be, and I, I, I haven't been around as many as other people here, but I've never seen anything like this before. I'm going to hold off still. All right, let me kind of pose something. Since, actually, Jared, do you want to say anything about all this instead of you know spending your entire time Dragging in chairs? Yeah, can everybody move uh, that way? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to There's empty chairs here if people want to scoot. There's lots of empty chairs and stuff. You can even come sit here on the comfy chair. We're going to offer another 10 minutes, okay? So then we'll get a chance to stand up. <laughs> There's about seven chairs over here. Oh, no. 
and so like what is our capacity to interact with community? All right, hi everybody. Whoa. So Jared, reading I wanted to say something political. Uh, okay, hold on, wait. Uh, Becca. Um, you have to take who you want. My name is Becca. I'm coming from Boston. Um, I wanted to agree with uh, Luis and add on to some of the things that I've been seeing, which is um, I'm still trying to figure out what's going on, and I found, I found um, Claire, your presentation about um, this moment that we're in has both opportunity, and I want to like acknowledge that within every protest that I've been in, both of those elements of opportunity and co-optation exist. And so I think it's really important to like point out that in some moments, I've never been more inspired in the last few weeks in terms of not only who's coming out, but they're outflanking me by far. The things that they're saying, the things that they're feeling and thinking are beyond what I would even be saying. And at the same time, then they'll be like singing Kumbaya, we're like all here and like this bizarre rendition of like the going backwards. So I think it's our responsibility to um, push in the most liberatory direction possible. And I'm hoping that we can collectively realize that as individuals, it's hard to go to those mo to go to those protests and have like an articulate politic where we're not actually going to be absorbed into like the worst elements of some of them. Because I think like at least in Boston, if every single person was told that actually like just kidding Elizabeth Warren's actually going to be in power, everybody would go home and that would be like the best possible scenario. So how do you push in a moment where you don't want that to be the end result? Wait. <coughs> yeah, I am Price and uh, I, I talking about our own experience of people. I see there's really an experience the two tendencies. It's a minority tendency that Shaman has talked about, which I think is very important, but it's definitely a minority of young, radicalized youth who want to want to fight. And it's very important for us to reach out to them, but I, I think they're not really thinking about how do we win over the big majority. Uh, and that's the other side. I've seen among, among most of my friends and my family's friends and, and, and my wife's friends and co-workers and so forth are white collar workers, white collar work, part of the working class, but the better off section of the working class, they're absolutely furious. They say, this is war. They're, you know, boiling over. And that's what, you know, we've, what we've seen them coming out. At the same time, uh, I remember the uh, uh, Michael Moore demonstration in New York, uh, people spontaneously breaking out into a chant of Obama, Obama, Obama. You know, they're not so much crazy about calling out for Hillary Clinton to come back, but they're all, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, there's, but there's, you know, they wish Obama would come back. Yeah. To, to be critical of, uh, of the Democratic Party is something you don't hear. And for us to raise that is, I think, one of the big things we could, could be doing there. But just to say that there's, a, there's enormous fury, but it's very much channeled in a sort of a left liberal, uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, wing of the Democratic Party. So I want to just say a couple of things, okay? One is that, oh, no, no, you, you get it. Gary. Sure. Yes? Okay, thanks. Sorry, I'm here now, guys. Um, I just wanted to flag. You have to say I who you are. You have to say who you are. Oh, I'm Jared, sorry. Uh, Jared, <laughs> for the um, 
I wanted to flag um, the interesting phenomenon over the last week that our crazy friends who have spent years Googling these obscure fascists uh, and trying to tell everybody about them have landed on the top fold of the New York Times. <laughs> and there's a massive interest in anti-fascist organizing. Um, and a, a lot of liberals uh, who would ordinarily be up in arms about uh, unkind words thrown in the direction of a police officer and so forth are coming around to this idea that um, we are in some kind of situation where the executive power is not legitimate. Um, there's a rise of an extra parliamentary right, and somebody needs to take more direct action. Uh, it, I, I just, I just wanted to throw that out because I think there's a million problems uh, with adventurism, and if you know me, you know, you know some of them, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I think we knew all of them. If we knew you. <laughs> I think that like when we meet younger people who just can't wait to just go and, 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 and punch, uh, punch a Nazi in front of 50 cameras, right? we should let them know about some of the possible uh, ramifications that would follow from that. Right? But I also, I, I don't think that we should ignore the fact that there are a lot of people, whether they think that the, the, the uh, Russians hacked the election, or uh, Trump's the Manchurian candidate, or Steve Bannon's a robot, or any of these crazy theories, <laughs> are coming around to the idea that the executive branch is not to be respected, right? And I, I think that we need to we need to be able to orient to that, and maybe maybe act as some kind of bridge between these kind of crazy Google <coughs> theories and like uh, direct action-oriented strategy. Okay, so uh, yes, this person. Yes, yeah, so that you know that, that yep. name. You got who you are? Oh yeah. Hi, I'm Gus. I'm from uh, I'm from <coughs> Houston. Um, I'm very, very glad to be here. Um, so yeah, you brought up something very interesting. It's just like these, this rise of, of, of interest in, from the youth in anti-fascism and anti-fascist organizations. Um, you know, which is really interesting because you know I got my political beginnings in you know Houston anti-racist action about 12 years ago, um, and, and you know, at the time. Um, you know, we found ourselves coming up to lots of limits you know, with the, you know, adventurism and Googling Nazis and stuff and like, you know, we, we, we found ourselves at our own limits um, and, and, you know, decided to kind of diversify our work and, 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 you know, do stuff that kind of looked and resembled more like class struggle, um, but also, you know, um, really everything. I mean, I could talk a lot about the experience. The point is, is that we didn't need something like, you know, um, we didn't need to look up Amadeo Bordiga and like critiques of anti-fascism and like, you know, anti-fascism being the worst product of fascism and stuff to really like, you know, um, hash through the, the, the political questions that were being raised and through the course of our struggle, genuine political questions. And there's no substitute for that. You know, you know, and so like, I want to echo a little bit what Shimon said about, you know, the, um, um, the, the, the popular front and historical questions and stuff like that, not necessarily being entirely relevant to the present moment, um, they can be raised in the same way and we can still have positions based on them. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily wrong to, to, to understand history in that way. Um, but, you know, it's like, you know, I, I, I eventually, you know, pardoned a critique of, of anti-fascism and stuff. And it's like, now I find myself stepping backwards and, and I'm more <coughs> agnostic on the question, wanting to see what can come out of it just because I, I, in my own experience, I did see more come out of it. And it was in the form of a critique, but, um, you know, it's, uh, um, I guess the, the, the point is the point I'm trying to make, you know, is like we be careful not to speculate too much on what's going to come from all this interest in anti-fascism. And it's really like the, the interest is really huge. I can't I can't really say like the scope of it. Like there's multiple anti-fascist groups forming, you know, locally where I am, and I'm sure that, that that's happening here too, and they all have different political orientations and stuff. But you know, um, 
it's like my, my mother, you know, knows what anti-fascism is. Well, she, she, she knew what it is when I was 12 now, t- you know, 12 years ago. Um, but, you know, now she's like, you're on TV now. I'm not on TV particularly, but she's like, you're your people. Those are your people. Okay, right. Yeah, just real quick. So, <coughs> my name is Jeff. I come from, sorry, <coughs> I come from Boston. Working with a group called Rosendale is for everyone. It's one of these new groups where people are just coming out for the first time. Uh, I want to say three things. First, it's really interesting. I think I agree with what, what Becca said. There's, in some sense, there's a rage, but then there's also a wanting to protect and hug. People are freaked out because the liberal order seems to be unstable, perhaps collapsing. Yes. And people, yes. they're enraged, they're confused, and they don't know exactly where to go. We, we think we have answers, but we probably don't. We're all struggling. So I'd, I'd like to think about that collectively. And I'm really interested in the divide between elites. So I the idea that they're sort of elites from uh, fossil fuel uh, and the defense sectors. Is there a, a split going on right now? What about high-tech elites, financial elites? I'd like to understand the terrain in terms of how things are, are moving and shaping. Okay. So having said that, uh, Claire, I really want to give you a chance. To, if kind of you kind of you got your opening and then you didn't get much sense. Anything you want to add in response to all the different things you've heard? Um, I think there were too many for me to respond to. I'd be more interested in hearing okay. if something specific comes up. But uh, I'd like to echo that question. That's something that interests me as well. Um, and I think with the developments in the past few weeks, what we've seen is a realigning of, for example, the tech elites mm-hmm. with the fossil fuel and weapons elites mm-hmm. and the division of the corporate class that uh, some of us were anticipating or had witnessed during election season seems to be now fizzing away. That's my interpretation. But I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on that because I do think it's a very important strategic question for us. All right, any last word, 30 seconds or so? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, I'd like to just, just point out this question of like, you know, people talk about what is the working class, and there's been different ideas about that. That's kind of want to go back to what I started with, is I think it's problematic if we take the idea of the working class as like already given. It's there, constituted. We just must give them the gospel and they will come. There's nothing new about this. We, you don't have to... Uh, buy into the idea of a labor aristocracy to believe that the working class is divided. Um, you know, the idea Marx raised it a long time ago that the proletariat is revolutionary or it's nothing. Right now it happens to be nothing because it is divided and competing against each other. And there's nothing really, I don't think it should, it's really that stretch to say certain sectors of the working class would like to just hold on, especially in a period of kind of disintegration. The liberal order is in a kind of global crisis, and you want to hold on to what you have. And I don't think that that's really should be something that controversial. And I think that um, the kind of more vulnerable sectors of the working class, it's not really about appealing to somebody with a program. It's about people are struggling, and that it's only through that struggle that we would challenge our own ideological obstacles. Really quick, one last point. Oh, just <laughs> right, on, taking you know. advantage of the chair. I got it. Is <laughs> one point is that um, you know I think there's a way to that we talk about the working class that is a very ideologically problematic way of talking about the working class. But I think one aspect of ideology is to theorize away contradictions and differences. So it's like liberal ideology says we're all citizens even though we're not, right? It's the sphere of reconciliation. And I think that working class politics can do the same thing. Oh, we're all workers, comrade, you know, or whatever you want to say. But the case is that we have differences amongst us and that it's 
kind of only in and through that struggle. What that constitutes, I don't know. I think it's good, as was said earlier by, uh, you know, Dave, is like to talk about where you're at and where you're struggling. And I think that um, it's only in and through struggle that we kind of overcome these differences. 